our experience and our strength and hope with each other. And I just know she's going to give a wonderful talk. Seems a very gracious lady. I kind of fell in love with her, I guess, right <laughs> off the bat. So I know, I know y'all don't want to listen to me. So without any prolonging things, I'd like to introduce our speaker, Winnie E. from La Puente, California. Good morning, my name is Winnie. I'm the wife of an alcoholic, a member of Al-Anon, and I'm not always grateful for either one. <sighs> I'll tell you, I just don't know. I was praying all night that you people would sleep in. But uh, as long as you're here, you're going to get it. I don't know. I, I told Lou earlier, I, I am always nervous, but I'm not sorry, you know, because um, there, I was nervous most of my life, uh, except now I can tell somebody about it, you know, and it's a whole lot easier to be able to say I'm nervous and get over it than it is to suffer through it while you, you try to play a game. I know there are some alcoholics in the group today, and uh, you can never depend on the alcoholics, so I like to give them their message first. For one thing, I'm not sure that I've got a message, you know. I talked for years and my husband never heard me. But uh, whatever it is, or, or for whatever it means, I, uh, I got a clue one time. I was talking in a little town called Fontana, because we have little towns in California, too, and I've lived in most of them. But uh, after the meeting, a girl came up to me and she said, where are you going to be the next time? And I said, well, I don't know. Why? Oh, she said, I'd just love to have my husband hear you. And I thought, man, I must have said something. And I couldn't remember what it was, so I decided to ask her. And I said, why, do you think I can help your husband? She said, well, not really. But after he hears you, he's going to be glad he got me. <laughs> so. So that may be the message that you've got. It's one of gratitude. But if it takes you as long to get gratitude as it took me, why, it's well worth the time it took to tell it. I, I try to follow in talking the, the formula of sharing my experience, strength, and hope, tell a little bit about what I used to be like, what happened, and what I'm like today. Of course, in my particular case, I tell a little bit about what it used to be like, what happened, and let you guess because there are still people in California that aren't sure I'm going to make it. But that doesn't worry me anymore, because while they're worrying about me, I can get on with the program. But uh, I used to feel sorry uh, about going to some meetings, you know, time after time after time, because you can't change the story. What happened, what I used to be like, is going to be the same no matter how many times I tell it. But I used to feel sorry for some of these Al-Anons that were such gluttons for punishment that they'd come back time and time again. And then one day I was sitting all by myself commiserating with how sorry I felt for those people and it suddenly dawned on me they couldn't possibly have heard it as many times as I've told it. So I, I feel a little more sorry for myself now. I, um, I grew up in a family where there was a drinking problem. And I used to say that my father was an alcoholic, but I don't know whether he was or not. You know, he didn't think he was. He, he thought he was a social drinker. He lived a social drinker, and he died a social drinker, but he liked it. And when I wasn't trying to help him, he liked me too. 
But um, when I came to Al-Anon, I could spot an alcoholic two miles away. Anybody that was going into a bar, coming out of a bar, standing in front of a liquor store, or just looking strange, <laughs> you know, to me was an alcoholic because that's what I was accustomed to, strange people, people that just didn't seem to know how to live, no matter how hard I tried to help them, you know. And uh, in growing up, my father didn't do anything like I suppose happened in a lot of families. He didn't beat me. He didn't deprive me. But he didn't have to, because it wasn't so much what my father did that bothered me. It was what my father didn't do that bothered me. You see, I used to go around and scout fathers. And, uh, and I had developed some very definite ideas about what I thought a father ought to be like. And for some reason or other, my father wasn't like any of them. And no matter how hard I tried to persuade him to do certain things certain ways, he just went right on and did what he pleased, and it upset me. And it made my life miserable, to be honest with you, because when I was away at school, I could be very honest about my mother, about my brothers, about my sister, but never my father. I always used to describe my father the way I wished he was, sort of a composite picture of all the good things I thought a father ought to be. Now, I had never been a father, but I had a lot of ideas. And, of course, it made life miserable because it meant no one could go home with me. Because if they did, they were going to find out one of two things right now. The man that was married with, or was living with my mother was not my father, or that I was the biggest liar that ever came down the pike. Now, I never considered myself a liar. I looked upon myself as a diplomat because um, I, didn't, uh, I didn't lie. I just didn't tell the truth. And I thought there was a difference. You see, I learned at a very early age that people anticipate what you're going to say. So if you lead them up to a certain point and stop, they guess what you would have said if you'd have gone on. And uh, they're very poor guessers, but I never felt I should be held responsible for their inadequacies. And uh, I have trouble with that even sometimes today because since my husband's been sober, he's not here, by the way. He's up in the room praying for me. Uh... He's only, uh, only heard me give one pitch, and uh, he says he's not well enough to go through it twice. <laughs> but, um, but since my husband's been sober, he's taken kind of an interest in my welfare, which is a nice way of saying that he don't tell me to get lost as often as he used to. And uh, if I'm going to talk at a meeting that's quite a ways away, he usually volunteers to go with me. Now, this is a test of serenity. Uh, for any Al-Anon, you know, because uh, I happen to be married to a thinker. Sometimes he thinks two, three weeks, you know, before uh, he gives you an answer because uh, he don't want to rush into anything. And, uh, uh, well, to tell you the truth, since he's given up drinking, he's taken up dusting. You know, he dusts around you and over you kind of gives you a feeling of being either dirty or unwanted, but uh, we were playing golf one day, and I happened to look over, and uh, he was dusting the golf cart, and I thought, this is ridiculous, so uh, when, he got, when I got back in the cart, I, I said to him, you know, when you die, I'm going to bury you in a plastic bag, and he didn't say anything, so I didn't say anything, but about two weeks later, out of a clear blue sky... He said, I don't think that was very nice. 
And, of course, uh, by that time I'd forgotten what I'd said, you know. But uh, anyhow, I, I, was asked to, uh, I was asked to talk down in, in Chula Vista, and I just couldn't face going that far with him. You know, I just wasn't really up to it. Uh, because we are a disaster when we travel together, you know. We're not so bad on the freeway, but a parking lot. We can go into a parking lot that holds 200 cars, and there'll be one other car, and it takes us an hour to park. Because uh, we have to have everything just right, you know. The sun has to be coming from the right direction, and the wind blow. In fact, about a week ago, we were up in Thousand Oaks, and uh, it took us about 45 minutes to find a parking place because Eddie had bought a custard pie, and he didn't want the sun to, to get on it. And so we finally found the ideal parking place, but we were in this place that we were going a little bit longer than we had anticipated, and the sun shifted and melted the chocolate candy that he had on the other side. So that's the way it goes. But um, anyhow, uh, and, and it does something, you know, to, uh, to an Al-Anon leader if the speaker comes in and looks like she's got the DTs. Because uh, you never know whether she's flipped over and they haven't caught her yet or what's going on. So uh, on this particular day, I, I just merely said to him, I'm going to talk at a meeting. And he said, okay. So I left. Only that night I didn't get home at 10.30 or quarter of 11. Uh, it was more like a quarter of one. And when I opened the door, there he stood in my spot <laughs> with... Uh, With that age-old question, you know, where the hell have you been? <laughs> and without even thinking, I said to him, well, how far do you think it is to Chula Vista? Now, he accused me of lying to him, but I didn't lie to him. You know, I didn't tell him I wasn't going to Chula Vista. And if he had said, Winnie, are you going to Chula Vista? I was willing to tell him, you see. But he didn't ask me. Now, that's the way I used to operate, you see. If you asked the right question, you got the whole story. But if you didn't, that wasn't my fault. I was willing to tell you. But uh, my, my husband, well, there was one habit that my father had that kind of slopped over into later years, and that was sleeping on the living room floor. It wasn't that he liked sleeping on the living room floor. It was just the way it worked out. You know, he'd come home and he'd sit down, then he'd lean down, then he'd lay down. And uh, that meant he was good for the night, and my mother, being the type of person she was, let me understand that that was his business, and if I tended to my business, we should get along beautifully. So I used to step over him and go about my business. But what I should have done was step on him. You know, because he bothered me on that floor. And when I got one of my own that used to pick peculiar places to sleep, I didn't care if he was on the lawn or the front porch. I would have preferred something like this I-65 or whatever it is because he's got a double indemnity clause in his insurance. But uh, I couldn't stand him on that living room floor. And I can remember this minute taking him by the heels, you know, and I'd pull him and his head bounced. And I loved it when his head bounced. Oh, boy. There's something about that thud that, that makes you feel good deep down inside, you know. And uh, drunk as he was, he'd say, Ah, oh, you're not mad at me. You're mad at your father, you know. And I had a standard answer. Compared to you, my father was a Boy Scout. But uh, that's really the tragedy of the whole situation, you know. Because long, long ago, probably farther back than I'll ever remember... I began to live in a world of fantasy. I began to live in a dream. And let's pretend is okay for kids. But if you grow up in that dream, if you're anything like me, it eventually turns into a nightmare that you can't get out of because you don't know reality. 
at all. Now, I don't know what happened to the man that I met, fell in love with, and permitted to marry me. Uh, but as soon as he was mine, I decided to help him. I wanted to help him become what I knew he wanted to be for my sake. And I'm not well enough yet to describe that for you. You've got to figure it out for yourself. But uh, I'll tell you one thing I didn't tell him, that my help is deadly. I had friends that wouldn't tell me they were in trouble for fear I'd help them. <laughs> because I have one of those natural knacks for messing things up, you know. And I don't do it intentionally. It just happens. It's just the way it is. But, of course, I didn't tell Eddie because as soon as we were married, we ceased to be friends. We became competitors. He spent half his life trying to outwit me, and I spent my life trying to outwit him, and we ended up a couple of halfwits is about the way it... <laughs> It turned out, but uh, he was in the Navy. He was a professional man. He was a full lieutenant. And I didn't go into this blindly because I never went into anything blindly. I used to uh, really research whatever I was going to do, uh, and which was one of the mysteries of my life, how I could get into so much trouble when I planned it so carefully, you know. But I got a hold of some information about the Navy, and unfortunately one of the things I got was a table of operations and I noticed that there were only a couple of lines between what he was and what I decided to help him become, which was Admiral. <laughs> now, I knew they only had one Admiral in the Dental Corps, but I only had one man in mind for the job, you know, and uh, it didn't look as difficult as it turned out to be because uh, what I should have done really was join the Navy myself because I showed up every day. They never had to worry about me. He only showed up when the spirit moved him. And, of course, I would have made a marvelous shore patrolman because I have a little bit of bird dog in me. And uh, when I'd find out he hadn't shown up, I'd just put my nose to the grindstone, you know, to the ground, you know, and away I'd go. And usually I'd find him, except for the one time that he got mixed up with a dental tech that had a van. They almost drove me crazy. I'd just find him, you know, and they'd move the damn van. And, uh, but, uh... Sometimes it took me longer than others to find him, and by the time I caught up with him, he'd be in pretty bad shape, so that's when I used to hide him. We played hide-and-seek for years, you know. He didn't even know there was a game going on. But uh, after he came to Alcoholics Anonymous, I felt I should help him with the program because I wasn't sure he was bright enough to get what they said they were willing to give him. And so every meeting, I would go with my little notebook, and I would jot down a few of the pertinent things that applied to his peculiar situation, and then I'd spoon-feed him, and, you know, during the week so that he could go back and have his lesson prepared. And I heard two things that are worse than drinking. One was sleep teaching. I got myself a big book, and every night, just as Eddie would go to bed, I would open it to Chapter 5, and I would read to him, rarely. Have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly followed our path? You know, all the right inflection, everything was perfect. The dumbbell slept through the whole thing. I memorized the whole fifth chapter. And I think sometimes when we go to a, a, an AA meeting that's outside our own area, you know, where you can't tell one from the other, it's always me they come up to. And they'll say, keep coming back, honey. It works. But... Um, the other uh, thing that I heard was that you can't get drunk if you're grateful. 
Now, right after I came to Al-Anon, they removed from my vocabulary a few of my old standbys, you know, like, you better not drink today. If you come home drunk tonight, your clothes will be on the porch. You know, Eddie thought his closet was on the porch for a long time. But they kept telling me I couldn't say that. And so uh, when you tell somebody like me that, they make adjustments. You know, I had to get the message across and still stay within the confines of the organization. And so when I heard this little bit about gratitude, I thought, well, that'll do it. So every morning when Eddie would leave for the office, I'd say, remember, today, be grateful. And he'd say, for what? (laughs) And I was kind of running out of things, you know, because I'd given things to be grateful for. And uh, one day I happened to remember about this game of hide-and-seek. And so I told him very honestly that when he drank excessively, it had been necessary on occasion for me to put him in some rather out-of-the-way places. But I'd never lost him. So be grateful, you know. And I did put him in some strange places, but the one that I usually tell about, uh, because it points out so many things about me, happened down in the Long Beach area. Uh, They had a mock submarine just inside the sentry gate. And uh, I came across Lloyd John. By the way, I call him a lot of things, but I've only been married once. Um, I came across Lloyd John in front of this mock submarine with his six-pack of beer at the exact moment that I spotted his commanding officer coming from the opposite direction. Now, I had just told that man one of my better stories, which meant I had to get rid of him because he was living proof that I hadn't exactly told the whole story. And the only place I had to put him was in that submarine. Now, you got to remember that Eddie had gotten conditioned to me because when I came to Al-Anon, I had one of the greatest pitching arms in the business. I could throw a full six-pack of beer farther than he had strength enough to retrieve it. So if I was around and he had a six-pack of beer, he'd hold it like Joe Namath, you know, trying to make an end run. But uh, getting him in that submarine wasn't as hard as it sounds. You know, I I just helped him up and he fell down. But uh, getting him out was a horse of another color, you know, because he wouldn't hand me the beer. And I have many times wondered what that sentry must have thought of that female, half in, half out of the conning tower, that darn thing, Finally coming up with this lieutenant commander holding his beer in his hat. He didn't know whether he was going up or down, you know. Because I used to go on that base like I owned it in my house coat and my curlers. <laughs> because I don't really believe that the alcoholic fully appreciates what we give up in order to help them. In my particular case, it was dressing, you know. I had a choice. I could always go to bed in whatever I was going to wear the next day. But uh, when you're on a constant alert, you know, there is nothing like an old bathrobe because uh, you could always, it's almost acceptable any place you go. Well, I'll tell you, I, I had never have figured out the mystery of how far them son of a guns can get while you're combing your hair. But uh, anyhow... I had a, had a chance of talking down in, at the Navy station one time. It's sort of God's way of helping me make amends. He keeps sending me back so I can confess. And um, there was a fellow in the meeting that night who happened to be a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. And he came up to me afterwards and he said, Winnie, if you ever get nostalgic, come on down and I'll take you through that submarine because it was one of my favorite drinking places. And that fast, my mind went back 
20 years and I thought, my Lord, what would I have done if I'd have reached down and come up with the wrong one, you know? Because <laughs> I was really in no mood for change at that point, you know, I, I had a terrible time, but anyhow, I guess you, you realize how I felt when Eddie came home and announced out of a clear blue sky he had resigned from the Navy. Felt like somebody that had lost a business, you know? Because for some reason or other, I felt it was my responsibility to make something out of him. I don't know what he was before I got him, but I knew what he turned into, you know. And during the years that he was in the Navy, I had begin, begun to wonder about him, you know. I never blamed the drinking, because I liked to drink. I used to enjoy going to a cocktail party, having a few drinks. I even enjoyed once in a while making a darn fool out of myself. But I didn't want to make a career out of it. And for some reason or other, I couldn't get across to him how normal people acted. Me, you know. <laughs> and if we had a, an invitation to a cocktail party on Friday, I'd start about Wednesday trying to brainwash him into to acknowledging that it's okay to come home tonight. You don't have to stay till Monday. You know, it's all right. But uh, in my opinion, and that's all I'm offering you today, I really believe that, uh, that I was as addicted to him as he was to the alcohol. Because as his drinking increased, mine decreased. Until if you had met me when I first came to Al-Anon, you would have thought I was the reincarnation of Carrie Nation. Because I hated it. Not just it, but anything connected with it. You know, I was afraid to say it for fear that it would, you know, go through the waves and he'd get the message. But uh, after he resigned from the Navy, I was really in a quandary. You know, what am I going to do with him now? And while I was thinking about it, I happened to remember his mother. I didn't like his mother. I, uh, I'm sort of like M, you know. I didn't have any particular reason uh, except she was his mother. And uh, it seemed to me like she always came at the wrong time, you know. I would get Eddie grooves so that I knew exactly what he was going to do. And I could plan accordingly. You know, you start peeling the potatoes at 4.30, you start looking for him at 5. You catch him about 6, talk him into coming home at 7, you can eat at 8. She'd come out here, he'd come home at 4.30. What am I going to do with them until 8 o'clock? You know, because I never let anything interfere with my schedule. But uh, among other things, uh, she was a person that didn't believe in drinking anything but water. Coffee, tea, or milk were out of the question. So it suddenly dawned on me, that's his problem. You see, he wasn't raised in a social drinking family such as mine, so the poor thing didn't know how to drink. And I decided to teach him. Have you ever tried to teach an alcoholic how to drink? You got one big problem. You got to get him sober enough to find out if he's learning anything that you're teaching him. So, uh... In order to do that, I decided to get him out of California because I hated California. To me, it was one large bar separated by an occasional liquor store. And I wanted to get him out of California and back to the Middle West, where people are really people, not a bunch of jerks like they got out there. And so I had that nice, comfortable feeling that you get, you know, when you, when you finally solved a problem, because I knew this was going to be all right. And, uh, of course, we left California, and I made my first mistake. I stopped in Gallup, New Mexico. And I spent three of the most miserable days of my life in that godforsaken place because he got into a bar that I was afraid to follow him into. Now, from where I was sitting, he and a tribe of Indians went in. And uh, 
I know what Indians and firewater do when they get mixed up together, and they were going to get me in that godforsaken place. It never dawned on me there was a back door. He went in the front door, out the back door, wherever he wanted to go, in the back door, out the front door, and there was old Faithful spouting right where he left her, you know. Because I was a lot of things, and Faithful was one of them. But uh, there was a little Indian squaw standing right in front of this place, and... and, uh, I like to mention her because I think she was my first contact with that certain something that I've found in Al-Anon. In AA, they call it the unspoken language. But in Al-Anon, I think it's the language of the heart because it's the only place in my life that I have ever been where I can feel what somebody's saying, where I can watch a newcomer come through the door, see the look on her face, and know where she's coming from because I've been there. And this is the way I feel today. But I was a long way from that in Gallup. You know, I looked over at that little Indian and I thought to myself, these poor, ignorant people. I was so embarrassed for her that she would allow herself to stand in front of that place. I'm across the street making peanut butter and jelly sandwiches for five children, but she looked strange to me. (laughs) Second day, she looked pretty good, and the third day, I kind of waved at her, you know? Because she had her side of the street and I had mine. And... uh, Of course, while I was there, I had to make uh, a decision, and I decided that I would never again stop where the human race could contaminate my husband. Now, if you're driving across country and you don't intend to stop, you have to make adjustments. And uh, some darn fool had told me that Texas had dry counties, so that's the adjustment I made, you see. I mapped out a course so that we never stopped unless we were in a dry county. Of course, what the jerk forgot to tell me was that they put one dry one between two wet ones. I darn near never got out of Texas because uh, it didn't really make any difference. You know, he got just as drunk in a dry one as he would in a wet one. But when you're going crazy on a slow, easy plan, this helps because you can spend hours wondering, where did he get it? I don't know where he got it, you know? I know today that if I had locked him in a closet, he'd have come out drunk. I don't know where he gets it. But uh, my kids think Texas is the biggest place on earth, you know, because it took us almost two weeks to get through it. And uh, it was kind of an unwritten law. If she stops and you got anything to do, get out, get it done, and get back, because she'll never miss you. And that's about the way it was, you see, because I put them back there when I left. And I expected them to be back there when I got where I was going. And thank God they were. Because I never looked back there. I knew what was back there. I concentrated on that seat. And if it was full, we went. And if it was empty, we waited. It was a very simple formula. But we got to Harrisburg, which was, uh, well, it was my mother-in-law's hometown. I didn't like her, but I didn't mind using her. And um, she'd gotten herself elected secretary of the WCTU, and I figured, what's a better place to teach somebody how to drink than underneath the nose of the Women's Christian Temperance Union? So I had that nice, comfortable feeling once again, and uh, when Eddie asked, could he take the car down and have it serviced, because that's one thing about my husband. He always asked my permission before he did, as he damn pleased. (laughs) And... uh, I had the checkbook, the car keys, the credit cards, the money. I had everything. And I didn't want him to think I didn't trust him. So I made that magnanimous gesture, you know. And when he came back that day, naturally, he was drunker than I had ever seen him before. Which was no real surprise, because my husband was always drunker than I had ever seen him before. Now, a couple of times he protested his innocence. But uh, when you watch a man go through the door in the morning and you say to yourself, he'll be drunk when he gets home. 
So you don't wash the dishes, you don't make the bed, you don't, you don't do anything except plan how you're going to get even with him for what you know he's doing to you. Now, if he comes home sober and you admit it, you're crazy. Because who are you going to blame for the way the place looks, you know? But on this particular day, he was pretty loaded, so while I was packing, which is a record I held, when I came to, to Al-Anon, I could pack for ten people in less time than it takes most of you to make up your minds where you're going. But uh, I happen to remember being a native-born Missourian The Kansas is a dry state. But don't you believe it? Everything they drink in Missouri, they must haul over from Kansas. Because we were there less time than we were in Illinois until, of course, he found a bar within walking distance because I naturally took the car away from him, just like you would any other 10-year-old child you're taking care of. And every day he'd walk down to this damn place, and uh, it kind of tickled me after he got sober. Uh, he told me he had to pass the Catholic Church on the way going down. Now, I'm Catholic, but he's not. In fact, I thought I was doing penance for years for marrying that Methodist. But... Uh, he took the time one day to go into that church, light a candle, and say a prayer for me. And then he noticed a sign that said the candle cost a quarter and he didn't want to spend a quarter, so he blew it out. I've, uh, I've never had nerve enough to ask him, was he praying for me or against me, you know, because that's about the time the fun really started. Now, in my opinion, and that's all I'm offering today, is the way I think and the way I feel. But in my opinion, the non-alcoholic is by far sicker than the alcoholic. Because you take a drunk to a meeting and you get him sober, and right now you can see the difference. But you take someone like me, perfect. <laughs> Never did anything that I couldn't explain if I had enough time. Devoted my life to my family, to my community, to my church. Suffered such humiliation with hardly a whimper. Tell me I'm sick. How can you be sick and do what I did, you know? Or tell me that I have to change. How do you improve on perfect? And that's what I was. Oh, I was miserable, sure. But I was perfectly miserable. Nothing upset me like a good day. Because I went through life as a prepared loser, you know. I was all ready for misery, but you give me a good day and I was shot. But uh, the other reason I think that, that we're sicker is because, at least I was, if, if Eddie got sober for some reason, I would try to figure out what did I do to stop him. And while I'm trying to figure out what I do to stop him, he starts again. So now I've got to figure out what I do to start him, you know. And it was a constant over and over again because I felt responsible for everything that he did. I thought it all depended on what I did as to what he did. Well, he quit drinking all of a sudden, and I had decided to help him become a millionaire. And I had picked out this small, unsuspecting town in the state of Missouri that needed a dentist. I went down to see a friend of mine, and I didn't tell Eddie about this because, you know, if you tell him, they lost it up on you. You know, you got to do it all on your own. But I went down to see this friend of my father's who, unfortunately for him, was in the dental supply business. And I talked that man into giving me $17,000 worth of dental equipment. I had one of the most beautiful offices you've ever seen. I even had patients. But I had no dentist. <laughs> because uh, while I was busy setting up this office, I got to watch this. You know, I, he waited till my eyes were bad to give me this. 
And so I never know what time it is. But uh, anyhow, uh, he was only out of the... He, well, he found this darn bar called Blondie's because he always went in for these exquisite places, you know, where they don't turn on the lights. And uh, towards the end of his drinking, I didn't pray he got sober. I just prayed he'd get lost in the Hilton for a change, you know. But uh, he was only out of Blondie's once and in that office. And that's when a man came in that I decided to help. So I went down to Blondie's. And I don't know about you, but I used to take on kind of a crazy hatty look, you know. My hair would stand right straight up, and, and my eye, well, it wasn't so much that my eyes came out, but my skin went back. And, and I'd get that kind of a ferocious look, and I'd, he'd, you know, he did pretty well what I wanted him to do for the moment. And we went back up to the office, and as we walked in, this jerk says, Listen, Doc, I'm allergic to Novocaine, but I got my own anesthesia. So he took a bottle out of his pocket, and he had a drink, and the dentist had a drink, and they pulled the tooth, and then they both went back to Blondie's. <laughs> and that's when I decided I wouldn't help that town. They could suffer. And yet today, I'm grateful, as I have been many other days, that drunk as he was, sick as he was, he had a deeper sense of self-limitation. He had a self-honesty that I knew nothing about. Because maybe he wasn't sober by certain standards. But when he was dry, he knew what was going on. Cold sober, I didn't know what was going on nine-tenths of the time because I had an emotional upset that I could not get to because I didn't know I had it. Now, when I left California, I had five children and I have eight altogether and you have to count them as they creep in just like I did <laughs> because I was always surprised. You know, I was the only one except for Eddie when he sobered up and counted them as a group, but... You know, I, I just was always surprised. But I knew when I left California that I was expecting a baby, but that was no big deal, you know? And, and I always lived on a schedule. Like make the beds at 7 o'clock, which isn't easy because they don't get up till 8. And you uh, come on down with all these other impossible things. And having a baby was way down the list. But it was getting kind of close to the time, so uh, I went up to Kansas City to see a doctor. And whether you realize it or not, doctors are very happy people. They're almost glad you're sick, some of them. And I got the joy boy of the whole bunch. Oh, man. This man was just delighted with me. He patted me on the back. He shook my hand. He really gave me the treatment, you know. And he said, Mrs. Eddie, you're going to have twins. I almost died in his office because I got problems. You see, I got a dental office with no dentist, plus five in that thing I don't know what to do with. I'm not really planning on one. He's insisting on two. And besides, I knew what Eddie was going to say when I told him because he said it. There are no twins in my family. <laughs> I got so involved defending my moral character that I forgot there were twins in my family, you know. It wasn't until after they arrived and my mother said, isn't it nice we have another set of twins? And I said, and whose family? She said, ours. I said, well, why didn't you tell me? She said, you never asked me. But that's no surprise, really, because I never ask anybody anything. You know, if you ask somebody, they're going to find out you don't know. And if you go around trying to pretend you know everything, it's kind of difficult to find out without asking. But anyhow, at the appointed time, I went into the hospital. And here again, a hospital is a very happy place. There are people that are happy they got there. People are happy. Everybody's happy. And I'd been happy once, and it hadn't worked out well, so I didn't really want what they had. And uh, so as soon as I was able, I had a telephone put in, and uh, 
When I thought I was getting happy, I'd just pick up that phone and call the office. Now, I knew that Eddie wasn't going to answer. I wasn't sure he knew there was a phone in there. But the point I'm trying to make is I don't need him to make me miserable. All I need is a little bit of time to think, to wonder. Where is he? And who is he with? And what is he doing? While I lie here? <laughs> Fifteen minutes, that's all it takes. You're having hysterics. Poor nurse, don't know what happened to you. You haven't even had a visitor. You look like you've been run over by a truck. You know, because uh, I, I, I never thought of my husband being out with the boys. Mine was always out with the girls. Those pretty sweet, lovable things. Like me before he did this. Yeah, if you're anything like me and you like to be right, find a mirror. You look like someone was left over from a bad Halloween party, you know. Because contrary to the popular belief, being a martyr is not easy. It's a 24-hour-a-day concentrated effort. Or you don't get the look. You know, you've got to have circles down to here. Build in tear stains and a jerk that comes on you when you're trying to impress them. You know... But anyhow, I had to make another impression or another decision, and uh, I decided that I would leave the Middle West and go to California, the land of sunshine and promise. I had forgotten how miserable I'd been in California, because compared to how miserable I was in Missouri, California looked pretty good to me. I couldn't figure out what happened to those people since I left, because they were just uh, terrible. And uh, Eddie helped a little with this decision because he said the magic words. Winnie, I have seen the light. I will never take another drink as long as I live. I'll tell you, between him going on and off like a uh, neon light and me going up and down like a yo-yo, we made a very distinguished-looking couple, you know. (laughs) But we got back to California, and I moved into the nicest place I could find, a place befitting a person of my stature. But I didn't stay there because I couldn't stand the people in Santa Monica. They were the most cold-bloodedest people I had ever been around. I didn't know any of them, but you don't have to know them. You know, you can, you can tell by just looking at them whether they're going to be nice or not. And uh, so I moved, and I went to Culver City, but I didn't stay there because I found out they were related to the people in Santa Monica. <laughs> and that's when I started looking for a place where I belonged, where I could fit in. And I went to El Segundo, Manhattan Beach, Inglewood. Uh, there just were darn few places I didn't stop. Not long, because it never took me too long to figure out, you know, that... I wasn't going to be comfortable there. In fact, my number one son asked me one day out of a clear blue sky, he said, Mom, do you think they're still counting me absent? And I said, where? And he says, you know that place where you enrolled me in the morning and we moved when I came home for lunch. Because that's about how long it took me to figure it out. But I know today that one of the reasons that I did all that moving was because I was looking for some place where I could belong. I wanted to find a place where I could fit in, where maybe somebody, even if it was by mistake, would come up and take my hand and say, I'm glad you're here. I wanted somebody to reassure me that I wasn't some kind of a horrible mistake. And a girl in Al-Anon asked me once, she said, Winnie, didn't it ever occur to you that if you had walked up to someone else and put your hand out and said, I'm glad you're here, would have had the same effect? Well, I couldn't take that chance. Because, you see, I spent a lifetime being afraid of you. Afraid that I wasn't going to measure up to what I thought you thought I ought to be. And so I built a wall. 
Not a wall to keep you out, but a wall to keep me in. And I damn near died of loneliness behind it. Now, they talk about the loneliness of the alcoholic, and I have no doubt but what they are, are very lonely people. But I don't think it holds a candle to the loneliness of the non-alcoholic. It's like two people going through the same operation, and one gets anesthesia. Because I felt every real or imaginary hurt because I was alone. I never had a feeling of belonging to anything, even my own family, because I was always on the outside. And maybe that's one of the reasons that I am so eternally grateful to the program of Al-Anon and to the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, because through their steps in the traditions, they allowed me to become a member of my own family. Because, you see, I was always unable to show any kind of affection because I thought love was a weapon. And I thought if they ever find out how I feel, they'll beat me to death with it. And so I held them at arm's length most of my life. Now, I didn't come to Al-Anon. Well, that's pretty well what I used to be like. Would you want to give that up for this? I really came to Al-Anon because my husband, when he was in the hospital, heard about Al-Anon at an AA meeting, and that dumbbell took the time to write a letter to the Al-Anon central office and tell him I was sick and needed help. And I resented that. Number one, that he would write, and number two, that you'd believe him, you know. But I'm grateful today for that letter, as I have been many other days. And I'm grateful also that God, as I understand him, chose for me a sponsor who had the patience of Job. Because she didn't find me an easy nut to crack. First day she came by, you know, she found the front door nailed shut. I had to. I was in no shape to cover two doors. And, uh... She, uh, she went around the back, and the, the car was there, and the coffee pot was boiling. She yoo-hooed me a couple of times, but she couldn't find me. She didn't know how practiced I was to hide in everybody, you know, between the front and the back door. And uh, she went next door, and she asked this little old lady whether or not Mrs. Eddie was at home. And Miss Martin said, well, even if she is. <laughs> and I resented that, too, you know, because I never bothered that woman. Once we almost got trapped in the backyard together and I hid in the bushes till she went in. <laughs> so she really, she really didn't have any right to say that. And, and my kids never bothered her. I didn't forbid them to go over there because I didn't be believe in forbidding children to do things. I, I use psychology on them, you know. Tell them the story of Hansel and Gretel and let it make up their own minds. <laughs> you know. You want to end up in an oven? Go on over there, you know. But, uh... I think she scared Wilma because when Wilma came back that night, she had a friend with her. In fact, they called on me in pairs for a long time. One of them would kind of stand back by the door, you know, in that nonchalant attitude. But I know that it was an unwritten law. If she gets me, honey, go. Don't wait. Just go. But uh, I don't know to this day how she got in that night. I, I used to get my kid, kids to bed on a production basis. You know, everybody in the tub, everybody washed, everybody rinsed, everybody out, everybody dried, everybody in bed so mother can worry. And uh, Wilma came between the drying and the dressing process, and all of a sudden, here's this strange female with a towel, and she's drying like mad. I didn't know who she was, but I wasn't going to interrupt her, you know. <laughs> Because that's how you get in trouble. I knew she was in the wrong house, but let her find out for herself. <laughs> but she kept drying, and the kids didn't seem to mind, and I figured, let her go. And uh, she talked incessantly, though. Alcoholics Anonymous. Alcoholics. Al-Anon. Al-Anon family groups. 
I'd never heard I didn't even know they were in the neighborhood. But uh, she finally said the magic word, drunks. I knew why she was there. She needed me. In fact, she told me she had a whole bunch of friends that needed me, too. And so when she invited me to go uh, to a meeting, because she was going to get them all together so I could help them as a group, I said, okay, I'll go. And, uh, but it was a funny thing. You know, when she left that night, whatever she brought with her went with her. And I gave her just time enough to get home, and then I called her and told her that uh, something very important had come up, and I would be unable to attend the meeting as scheduled. Now, I hadn't even done anything unimportant for a long time, but I couldn't let her find that out. I couldn't let her know how unimportant I was, because if she found out, then I'd know. And that was the first chink in the armor. You see, it wasn't you that I hid from all my life. It was me. I was afraid of failure. And so I couldn't possibly succeed, and I learned that in an Al-Anon meeting. Because when my number one son was drafted, I didn't know what to do with him. You know, I mean, I was busy, and, and I didn't know whether to help him march or send him to Canada. I didn't know what to do with him, you know, and I was afraid to let him go because he's very much like his father. And I thought, how oh, what, I can't go with him, you know, and so uh, I did what they told me to do. I took my problem to the Al-Anon meeting, but I really didn't trust them females enough to tell them the whole story, so I just hinted, you know. And sure enough, one of them picked up on it. And she said to me out of a clear blue sky one night, Winnie, why don't you get off that kid's back and allow him the dignity of failure? I had never heard those two words used in the same sentence before. I didn't know there was a dignity to failure. But she went on to say, if he never fails, he can't possibly succeed. Because if he has never experienced one thing, he'll never recognize the other. And you know, since that night, I have never gone to an AA meeting, an Al-Anon meeting, or even an Alateen meeting that I haven't watched, complete failure turned into absolute success. Now, I don't mean necessarily in a material way, because I have long since found out that success, at least for me, is not something you invite people over to or drive them around the block in or wear to a party. Success for me today is the ability to get up in the morning, walk into the bathroom, look in the mirror, and know who I am, to be able to be satisfied with me, so that I can one day at a time do the things that I am supposed to do, my part of living. Now, I had a terrible time with the program of Al-Anon. I rewrote the book the first week I was in, but nobody would pay any attention to me, you know, and I had this sponsor that had the ability to, well, she knew me so well that it's beyond explanation, you know. She used to give me things to do to keep me out of trouble. And when this thing on release first came out, you know, I have never released anything in my life. To this day, I have never released anything in my life. But I learned to accept it. But she gave me this thing to type up uh, for the group because she figured that would take me a little while. And she told me she needed 25 copies, so I typed it 25 times. <laughs> I, w I never even thought of carbon paper, you know. But when I took it back to the meeting... Every place where the word release appeared, I had spelled it R-E-L-E-A-S-H. Release. And this is what I always did. You see, I would let things go just so far, and then I'd yank them back. And I never could let go of anything unless I had something to latch on to, you know, because I didn't know that releasing meant freedom for me, not freedom for you. 
I just love that feeling of being able to get up in the morning and know that I don't have to go in and fill any teeth. I don't have to take care of Carter's business. I don't have to take care of anybody's business. A lot of times I don't have to do anything. That was a surprise, too. You know, when I turned my will and my life over to the care of God, I didn't know he was going to say, sit down. (laughs) And I used to worry about that because I had a lot of trouble turning things over to God. But I have found out since I've been in Al-Anon that the easy does it, for me, is the best thing that ever happened. Now, one of the first speakers that I ever heard in Al-Anon was a gal that always started to talk off by saying, my name is Fran and I love an alcoholic. And I wanted to knock her down. You know, because getting stuck with one is one thing, but to stand up there and brag about it, I thought that was a little risque. So uh, at the next meeting, they always encouraged the newcomers to... uh, you know, to, to be honest about how they felt. And so when they asked me what I thought of the speaker, I was very honest. I told them I didn't think the sick one should be allowed to talk. <laughs> and uh, just because I made that one honest little statement, they gave me an assignment. I was to go home, take Eddie's hand, and say, Eddie, I love you. That's all. I said, you're kidding. No, that's what you have to do. And would you believe that it took me three months to do it? And I didn't do it then because I wanted to. I did it because every time I went to that darn meeting, one of them females would say, have you done it yet? You know? And how do you sidestep a yes or no answer? And I didn't know what they did to you if you lied, you see. We had, uh, we had had people that came in and left and never came back. I didn't know what happened to them. And so... Uh, I didn't want to take any chances, and so one night after the light was out, I reached over and I took Eddie's hand and I said, Eddie, I love you. He sat right straight up in bed. He said, what the hell's the matter with you now? He thought I'd flipped, you know. And that isn't life's most romantic answer either. But I learned something that night that I couldn't have learned any other way. I learned for the first time that no matter how many times he tells me, no matter how many ways he shows me, no matter what kind of assurances he tries to give me, when he says, Winnie, I love you, I don't really know he's telling me the truth, unless I'm willing to accept his answer, which I'm not always. But I'll never again be in doubt about the way I feel about him. And that's why today when I say, my name is Winnie Eddie and I love an alcoholic, that is reality. I don't make any excuses. I don't try to change it. I don't want to make any kind of, of, of an explanation at all. I'm just grateful that God, as I understand him, brought me to Al-Anon so that I could allow him the dignity to live his life the way he tried, even when he was drunk, to allow me to live mine. He never tried to stop me in any way, shape, or form, and all the suffering that I went through were, was of my own making. Now, I had a lot of trouble trying to turn my will and my life over to the care of God. I didn't mind saying it, but I didn't want to do it, you know, because I didn't really trust God. I was afraid of him, because it seemed to me like every time somebody would say, Winnie, we're praying for you, something had happened, you know, and and I thought, God, they brought my name up again, and and, uh, (laughs) I wish they'd just quit, and so if they'd say, we're going to church, we'll pray for you, I'd say, don't, you know, leave me alone. But they kept telling me in the Al-Anon meeting, you know, you've got to turn things over. You've got to turn them over. And uh, I, I just couldn't do it. I just couldn't do it. But I thought I'll try. You know, I'll turn little things over. Uh, so the first thing I turned over was my ironing. 
And, uh, because I had a terrible time with ironing. You know, I used to wash like it was going out of style, but I never ironed. I, I got a sort of, uh, of a satisfaction out of watching a washing machine. Have you ever watched a washing machine? It just goes back and forth. It never gets any place, just back and forth, you know. And when you think you got it all pegged, it spins and it almost scares the dickens out of you, you know. But uh, I don't know. I just could not iron, and I'm, I'm that way today, you know. I think it was being attached to something that, that bothered me. I know that Eddie asked me one time, Winnie, why do you only iron one shirt at a time? And ever since I helped him with the AA program, he doesn't really like me to help him much anymore, but I spoon-feed him a little bit once in a while, and I told him that in Al-Anon we live one day at a time, just like you do, and that's it. (laughs) And uh, he said, but I like a choice. (laughs) And I said, okay, pick out the one you want me to iron, you know. I can always tell when there's a lot of non-ironers. But anyhow, uh, I had this, this, this whole pile of ironing, and, and it was getting bigger, you know. And so I decided, well, I'll try it. I'll, I'll turn it over. And I did. And I found out God don't like to iron anymore, and I did. <laughs> because nothing happened, and nothing happened, and nothing happened. And, and then all of a sudden, one night, uh, somebody said to me, Winnie, with all those kids, you must have some clothes they've outgrown. And, and of course, I assured him I did. And uh, he said, well, I go down to Mexico to an orphanage, and, and they could sure use some stuff. And I promised him, as I always do, I will go right home, and I'll get them all out. And if he'd have followed me home, I'd have done it. But he didn't. He let me go by myself. And I, something came up. I don't know what it was, and I didn't get to it. And, uh, in fact, I didn't get to it, period. But I came home from a meeting one night, and uh, Eddie said Bill was by. And I said, oh, really? He said, yeah, I gave him that stuff for the orphanage. I said, you did? Where did you find it? And he said, in the rumpus room. That was my ironing. (laughs) So you see, really and truly, if if you try, it takes him a little while. I I don't know whether it takes him time to figure out why or what, but he takes care of it, you know. You've got to do it the right way. And I have constant reminders of this because uh, just in, uh, just last year, the end of last year, my... uh, my son, who was in the Army, took his basic training right here at Fort Knox, and uh, I had a marvelous time when I was down here. You know, they, they wouldn't let me do anything. But uh, anyhow, he was going to Germany, and he made the mistake of calling me at 7 o'clock in the morning to tell me that he wasn't going to be home for Thanksgiving, Christmas, or New Year's. Now, even if it's a well, Al-Anon, you don't do that. You know, you don't call him at 7 o'clock in the morning and upset him because I don't know about the rest of them, but my eyes open up about two hours before my mind starts. And uh, he didn't have to, I didn't say anything, but my attitude kind of conveyed to him that I wasn't pleased with him or the Army or the United States or anything else, you know. And uh, so during the day, I I had a very miserable day. It was one of the nicest I've had in a long time. (laughs) And, uh, but my conscience began to bother me, so I... uh, I called him back and told him it was all right for him to go to Germany. And, uh, and that made us both feel better. And he, he managed to get home for Thanksgiving, but he was to leave on the 7th of December. And uh, about the 6th of December, I began to get that feeling again, you know. What do they mean by sending a good American boy to Germany uh, just before Christmas? What is he over there for? To preserve the American home, you know. And I've got a routine that I can go through all by myself that can start World War III. 
And, uh, but I decided that I'd do it. I'd turn it over. I'd turn him over, and I'd turn the army over, and I'd turn everything over. And so I did. And he and his father went to Phoenix, and I went to a retreat. I figured, what's a better place to, you know, to stay out of trouble? And, uh, while he was in Phoenix, he was bitten by a black widow spider. And when he came back, of course, he had to go down to the Naval Hospital. And to make a long story short, he was home for Christmas, and he was home for New Year's. Because that bite made him a part of the Navy, and they kept him there, because the Navy don't like to work on holidays, you know. And so, anyhow, there was another example of how turning something over, and it worked out exactly the way I would have had it work, but I never would have thought of a spider, (laughs) you know, because that's one of those things. Of course, people know me pretty well in my particular area, because some of them have seen me in my heyday, and when when I was talking to the recruiting uh, recruiting officer, about uh, Arthur being bitten, you know, while he was in Phoenix. And, and Sergeant Day looked at me for a minute and says, Ah, oh, come on, Mrs. Eddy. How long did it take you to train that spider for it? Bit him on the left hand. <laughs> but that's the way it goes, you know. It, it's one of those things. I like to take uh, a light touch as far as this program is concerned because I think I cried long enough, you know. And they told me when I was new that this was a place where we laughed together about the things we cried about alone. And so when I hear people laugh, I don't think they're laughing at me. I know they're laughing with me. Every time I mention my ironing or my washing or anything else and I hear somebody snicker, I know they don't either, you know, (laughs) because that's the way it is. About a year ago, my mother went into the hospital, and this was probably the biggest thing that I ever turned over to the God that I have today, and that was her illness, because I knew when she went into the hospital that it was going to be a terminal thing, And I tried my darndest to work this program, but it wasn't doing too well, you know, because I'd find myself slipping back. And so God sent to me an AA gal who stuck to me like the paper on the wall. I learned to hate her because every time I'd get that look, and I don't know whether you've ever seen it on an Al-Anon or not, but 10 minutes before they start to cry, they get the look. And she'd see that look on my face and she'd say, Winnie, take the third step. And I'd say, I have taken the third step. And then a few minutes later, she'd say, Winnie, take the third step. And I'd say, I have taken the third step. And finally, she said it once too often. And I flipped on her just like I've flipped on people all my life when they said something that I didn't want to hear. And I turned to her and I said, listen, Gloria, you know, your biggest problem is that you've been touting me off on the third step and I'm really on the 11th. And I repeated for her, sought through prayer and meditation to improve my conscious contact with God as I understand him, praying only for knowledge of his will and the power to carry that out. And as soon as I said it, I had an awakening that I have never had before. You see, I found out why I couldn't release people. I never thought of turning over to God as I understand him, the people I love. I was willing to turn my life over but I was not willing to turn you over. And I knew that the only person on earth who could give the dignity to a human being that I wanted to see was the God that you gave me in Al-Anon. And so because of that AA gal whom I later learned to love, and you people in the program of AA and Al-Anon and Alateen, I was allowed to let my mother die with the same dignity that she had always lived with. And in closing, I would like to share with you the little poem that my sponsor gave me that helped me through these many years of trying to learn to turn my will and my life over. First time I ever heard it, I thought of 
when my kids used to come to me with a yo-yo in one hand and the string attached to the other, and they'd say, please, Mom, get this, the knot out of the middle, you know, because there was no way that I could get that knot out unless they gave me the yo-yo. But this little poem goes like this. As children bring their broken toys with tears for us to mend, I took my broken dreams to God because he was my friend. But then, instead of leaving him in peace to work alone, I hung around and tried to help with ways that were my own. At last, I snatched them back and cried, How can you be so slow? My child, he said, what could I do? You never did let go. Thank you very much for asking me to come to Louisville. God bless. Isn't she great?